0: Joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast, I am Marianne Butler, a barrister at Fountain Court, specialising in professional discipline and regulation. In this episode, we explore the lessons learned from defending the most significant cases in the Solicitors Disciplinary Tribunal and on appeal in recent years. I am joined by the individuals who fought those cases, the counsel and solicitor giants of this field, namely. Tim Dutton, CBE KC, advises and acts in many of the most prominent and complex professional discipline cases and has conducted some of the largest multi-party cases in the field. He's ranked in both Chambers and Partners and the Legal 500 as a leading silk and a star individual in professional discipline. He's described in the directories as the king of law society regulatory work. Patricia Robertson Casey frequently appears in high-profile disciplinary cases before the SDT and regularly advises Magic Circle firms and major national firms on handling SRA investigations. She is ranked in both Chambers and Partners and the Legal 500 for her work in professional discipline. Richard Coleman Casey has substantial experience of disciplinary proceedings and investigations in relation to the financial services industry and the legal profession, and is regularly instructed in matters involving the Financial Conduct Authority, the Financial Reporting Council the Financial Ombudsman Service and the SRA. He's ranked in both Chambers and Partners and Legal 500 for professional discipline. Fergal Cathy is a partner at Clyde Co and has particular focus on complex disputes and regulatory investigations involving legal professionals. He is acting in some of the most sensitive and high-profile regulatory investigations and disciplinary cases, advising law firms and individuals on professional conduct issues, including their regulatory exposures and reporting obligations. Fergal is ranked in Chambers and Partners for professional discipline and has previously been listed among the lawyers' Hot 100. Michael Stacey is a partner at Russell Cook and has a particular specialism in regulatory and public law. He acts for regulators, businesses, charities and private clients in regulatory investigations, disciplinary proceedings, judicial reviews, professional liability disputes and other regulatory litigation. Michael is ranked in chambers and partners for professional discipline and as a next generation partner by Legal 500. Ian Miller is a partner at Kingsley Napley and specialises in legal ethics, investigations and public law matters. Acting in many of the leading cases relating to the regulation of lawyers in England and Wales, he has advised a number of large law firms on SRA-related issues. Ian is ranked in the Legal 500 Hall of Fame and Chambers and Partners for Professional Discipline. Between them, these stellar individuals have been involved in all of the following key cases, amongst numerous others, namely the SRA's prosecutions of Lee Day and others, the longest hearings so far in the SDT arising out of the El sweedy inquiry in the war in Iraq, the SRA and Wingate and Evans, which address the meaning of integrity amongst other matters, the SRA and Solicitor Z concerning non-disclosure agreements, the SRA and Baker McKenzie, Mr Senior and others, relating to the firm's investigations of allegations of sexual misconduct, and the SRA against Mishcons and Miss Allen regarding the alleged provision of banking facilities through the client account. Part one of the discussion covers SRA investigations, focusing in particular on the human cost of the process, the importance of cooperation from the outset, and how to manage clients' expectations, as well as issues of privilege amongst other matters. I'm very grateful to our speakers for joining me and for making it such an interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. We've mentioned the names of some of the big cases that you've been involved in in recent years. But no doubt some of the most important lessons that you've learnt have come from the very early stages of an SRA investigation and long before the proceedings have actually been issued in the SDT. Can we start then by talking a bit about that?
1: Can I kick off first by just saying that at the very beginning it's difficult to understate the human cost of the process. Individuals will be under a huge amount of pressure, they will um, often catastrophise about the outcome, will be very worried about about the twists and turns that would inevitably follow. And that's not helped by the quite often long time the SRA takes to investigate matters and get to the end of the process. So one of the first things to think about is supporting those involved in the process and finding ways in which they can manage what can be a very arduous experience.
2: Yes, I would certainly endorse that. I think you as a lawyer have to think about your bedside manner, if you like. But equally, you can't be their friend in the process as well as being their legal advisor. And so you have to think very early on about how you're going to encourage them to put in place the support they are going undoubtedly to need. At a very basic level, having somebody who will buddy them through the process, someone who's not involved in the underlying facts, who's not themselves facing a disciplinary process, and who's not a member of their family because it can also put a strain on marriages going through this sort of thing. That's very important. Equally, they might actually need professional psychological support. And there are some psychologists who specialise in supporting lawyers specifically. So that's something worth thinking about. And at a basic level, you need to ensure if it's an individual who's facing disciplinary process, that their firm are supportive in terms of allowing them to carve out the necessary time for their engagement in the process. And address all of that at the very beginning. Don't wait until your client is in a psychologically very difficult state.
3: And once you've got your client appropriately supported, one of the important things you need to think about is cooperation with the SRA as regulator from the outset. Many clients who receive a notice of investigation from the SRA, whether they are individuals or firms, but particularly individuals, may instinctively want to fight What can seem to them to be quite oppressive intervention, very wide ranging questions from the SRA, which invade their professional lives. Of course, an unjustified and unmeritorious allegation of misconduct must be met with an appropriate and robust defense. But we've got to keep in mind that an SRA. Investigation, indeed any investigation by a regulator, is not the same as private litigation. It's what I would call regulatory realism needs firmly to be in the minds of all of those advising people subject to an SRA investigation. And one needs to ask, whenever one is putting forward submissions, how does this sit within the regulatory? scheme? Am I, for example, complying with the duty to cooperate with the SRA under Part 3 of the Code, if you're an individual, in what I do and say in my own defence? And striking that balance is very important from the outset.
4: May I add to what Tim has said about the importance of cooperation? Because it seems to me that at the investigation stage, there is in fact no bright line separating regulatory liability, mitigation, and cooperation. As the SRA indicates in its enforcement strategy, an open, cooperative, and constructive approach by firms and solicitors may lead it to decide against taking any formal action, especially where appropriate remedial action has been taken by the firm to address any harm that the client may have suffered. I think it's also important to remember that the duty to cooperate may be engaged even before the SRA comes onto the scene. And that's because firms are expected, as part of their risk management obligations, to investigate regulatory issues which may come to light and to discharge their reporting obligations. And the SRA will take into account the firm's approach to these obligations when assessing what is a proportionate uh, regulatory response. So a proper investigation by the firm, uh, supported by any appropriate remedial action, may, for example, result in the SRA concluding that guidance, supervision, and monitoring are the appropriate regulatory response, and that formal action would be disproportionate.
5: I agree with that, Richard. And there are various ways in which firms can seek to engage with the SRA and influence the way in which they approach a conduct investigation. So For example, on the back of the discovery of an issue or a self-report to the SRA, a firm might, for example, roll out a new training program, tell the SRA what it's doing. And that conversation can sometimes happen in the case of some law firms through the SRA's RM process, relationship management. But simply corresponding with the SRA and telling them what you're doing could be a very good starting point. Another response to demonstrate meaningful engagement in more serious and factually complex issues might be to commission an external law firm or a silk to do a drains-up investigation, to interview witnesses, review documents, prepare a report which might in certain circumstances be disclosed to the SRA. That shows a maturity of approach and can sometimes provide the SRA with the evidence it needs to show that a firm is taking meaningful steps to grapple with an issue and to learn lessons. And we mustn't forget also that the SRA doesn't have unlimited resources. And so to the extent that firms can reduce the SRA's burden by doing some of the heavy lifting on the factual investigations in a constructive way, that might actually speed up the process and potentially lead to better outcomes.
2: I would very much endorse that. I think um, picking up on what others have said, it's very often the case that cooperation starts with Self-reporting and then volunteering to the SRA that the firm will itself lead on the investigation are often guided by external legal advice and then report to the SRA. But if you do take that course, it's very important to approach that investigation in the right spirit crucial not to brush anything under the carpet or you'll simply worsen the position the firm finds itself in. But equally, it has to be a balanced approach. It certainly should not be an exercise in throwing a sacrificial victim under the bus in a bid to get others off the hook. Because fundamentally, the integrity that the firm displays in showing its preparedness to investigate properly, unflinchingly and fairly is going to stand it in good stead in the event that that investigation does uncover conduct which uh, warrants some form of regulatory action. Now, that said, when you do disclose a report of that kind to the SRA, there is still advocacy involved in exactly how the results are presented the SRA, and it's very important to get that balance right.
1: Can I just add that I think it's important to bear in mind throughout this protest that what the SRA is trying to do is work out where does the public interest lie in deciding either to do nothing or to take enforcement steps. This is not commercial litigation. It's not about money. And in terms of framing the way in which a firm would approach an sra investigation it needs to keep those issues in mind and make sure that it ultimately use that as the pathway in terms of how it best responds to the sra
3: and one of the critical questions whether that's on an internal investigation which may go to the sra or the sra itself asking for information is how one deals with disclosure and i think we're going to come on to questions of privilege perhaps later, but it's worth considering at an early stage the disclosure duties which rest on individuals and firms. Cooperation with the SRA, where they are on a lawful and justified basis seeking disclosure, is absolutely vital. Many people think that some documents which may be Caught within a disclosure request, are better kept confidential to the firm, or not revealed. But keeping quiet or stum, in the hope that the SRA may not find something, is in truth a non-starter. If the something which a firm or individual might hope they won't find is indeed falling within the scope of the duty to cooperate and disclose to the SRA. As the inquiry carries on. And for me, a key feature of SRA investigations is that any form of cover up is almost invariably worse than whatever the crime or regulatory breach it is they're investigating. So, openness within the confines of lawfulness and obviously relevance is critically important, I think.
2: Uh, certainly, but there is perhaps a flip side to that coin, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, which is there is a tendency sometimes on the part of the SRA to frame its disclosure requests in incredibly wide ranging terms involving firms in enormous amounts of cost. And sometimes one feels without necessarily the reflection that would have gone into framing disclosure in a civil context where there would be cost consequences for overreaching. And I think that is a genuine problem, and it's a problem when a firm encounters such a wide-ranging request, how on earth should they respond to that? The practical reality is that attempting to challenge that in the courts is unlikely to be either feasible or productive. I mean, technically speaking, the avenue would be judicial review, but the chances of success, I would have thought, are very, very unlikely to be great. And so, in practical terms, what one has to do is engage with the SRA and try to persuade them To reduce the scope of the request to make it more proportionate. And that then is an exercise in advocacy. But if at the end of the day they won't play ball, the firm simply needs to comply and shoulder that cost.
3: Or bear the risk of uh, of JR proceedings. Uh, And I completely agree with you that many of the requests that I'm now seeing are too wide ranging. So that trying to keep the SRA within the scope what's both lawful and proper is perfectly okay, providing you don't go too
5: far. Can I just add one point on on disclosure? It's really about creation of documents, actually, which I do see quite regularly when I'm looking at law firms' internal files, when we're dealing with production notices and the like. When something goes wrong at a law firm, there's quite often a flurry of activity, emails, WhatsApps flying around between various people, trying to get to the bottom of what's happened. Sometimes, Jumping to the wrong conclusions, seeking to apportion blame to others, blaming clients, throwing colleagues under the bus, that sort of thing. It can be very easy from one individual's perspective to assume that someone's at fault, but when the full context is revealed, that often isn't the case. And most of that sort of material is not going to be privileged, and it often doesn't read well when the matter comes to be scrutinized by the SRA or the tribunal down the line, It's an entirely human reaction to a situation, but it's always best to ensure that the the law firm's risk team becomes involved in a very early stage to put a lid on that type of potentially unhelpful communication.
1: And can I draw out, and I think from those helpful points, and it's a point that I think applies more generally, is whenever taking a position with the SRA, you need to ensure that it is a position that you can sustain in the long term. This is not on one level a negotiation process where you can take a point and then abandon it at a later stage because that will not age very well and will look or will cause some issues further down the line. So with disclosure and with other issues, I think it is important to work through where the best position for the firm is and then stick with it rather than simply take a position because for that particular exchange, that was the best one to take.
0: Okay, thank you, Ian. So The importance of getting to the bottom of the facts and knowing what your long-term position is going to be, where do the role of external advisors fit into that, such as yourselves when you're dealing with SRA inquiries? Obviously, your involvement comes with quite a price tag. Are the costs always justified or can some SRA inquiries be dealt with just as effectively in-house? When is it a good moment to uh, look outside the organisation?
6: Well, if I could just say I think it's never too early to get advice if the issues could be serious, because in a serious case, even the terms of the self-report to the SRA can be very important and can make the difference to the outcome. So I think I'd say get advice on the way you cooperate with an investigation if it's all possible. The problem with some homemade replies to SRA questions is that they're not always sufficiently considered. So, there's usually a benefit to getting some specialist advice on those responses. It's very understandable that firms and individuals who are being questioned by the SRA want to be very cooperative and be seen to be replying very quickly and confidently. But I think, as we've already alluded to, the danger is that if you haven't sufficiently established the facts in the first place, then it's possible you'll make some hasty admissions which won't serve your interests in the longer term so you might think that these quick and confident responses will will make the matter go away but, but they usually won't and it's very important to have a position as Virgil said that can be sustained in the long term.
5: I agree with that, Michael. And the other thing I would say is that this is a specialist field and sometimes responses, very often responses to investigations do require very detailed and mature consideration. And so it's okay to ask the SRA for more time if it's needed to do the job properly. That's the first point I would make. Advisors need time to get hold of the documents. There could be many thousands that the SRA hasn't seen. They need to interrogate them carefully to interview the witnesses As well as provide ongoing support to the client and formulate the defense strategy. And bear in mind that you might be fighting on more than one front. More and more we're seeing regulatory processes running in parallel with with litigation. And so it's really important that there is proper coordination and strategic consideration being given to the overall situation. Marianne, you mentioned the cost of that. um, And you're quite right. This is not any old commercial litigation. It's more akin to criminal defence work in my view, and specialist regulatory defence lawyers, whether they are solicitors or barristers, are relatively thin on the ground. And it's important to get the right advisers in place. And I'm afraid we do see some cases going through the tribunal process where the solicitor respondent is either forced to represent themselves or doesn't engage with the process in a meaningful way. And that's often a result of lack of resources to fund a proper defence. In that context, it's important to note that the compulsory level of professional indemnity insurance isn't going to cover defence costs of regulatory investigations and prosecutions. And that's something that many lawyers don't discover until it's too late. Many law firms do carry some cover to deal with regulatory and disciplinary, but it's not always comprehensive. I've certainly seen some very restrictive terms, in particular, very low limits of defence cost cover, which won't get you very far down the line. And it's not uncommon for defence costs to be very significant. And that's entirely to be expected where someone's career is on the line. In-house lawyers, that's another issue altogether. Um, there is no requirement that in-house lawyers should carry insurance. And even if their firms, their employers carry insurance, the disciplinary, that insurance might not cover issues which arise in the, the context in which they're working. And for lawyers in private practice, issues which arise outside the workplace or relate to behavioral issues may well not be covered. So where else can you turn? Well, some law firms and um, in-house lawyers will carry some directors and officers liability insurance, for example, or other management liability insurance. But it's by no means clear that this would cover anyone who isn't sufficiently senior within an organization, or who doesn't have management responsibilities. And whereas an employer will usually be Vicariously liable for the negligent acts of an employee. In the regulatory sphere, it's the individual who carries personal responsibility for acts of misconduct. It may be that some employers will be content to assist with the funding of a lawyer's defence, but in an ideal world, that would be addressed in the in house lawyer's contract of employment. And so in house solicitors should give very careful thought to their potential regulatory exposures when joining an organisation. The matter can even become more complicated when an in-house lawyer moves to a new employer. Regulatory investigations often have a very long tail. Inquiries can sometimes be instigated many years after the conduct under scrutiny takes place. If you're prosecuted for conduct which took place while you were at company A, but you now work for company B, who's going to fund your defence? What if company A is no longer trading? What if you've retired? So all of this points to the need to reflect carefully on your personal responsibilities as a solicitor and make sure you're adequately covered.
0: Thank you, Fagal. And we'll come on a bit later to the problems of respondents, you know, even, even if successful in defending allegations of actually recovering their costs, which, as you say, can be um, very significant. And we'll come on to that later.
1: Can I just add a point that, um, that I think for those who are experienced in this area, probably at the outset of a matter, the range of likely outcomes will be relatively clear. And part of what it those experienced practitioners do is identify in a sense of what's the least worst outcome and see whether they can deal with the investigation and subsequent SRA action in a way that puts this at the bottom range of those outcomes. And that might be the SRA takes no action, or it might be that there is inevitably going to be a consequence. But this is a, a type of work where you can actually, through the process, make the position worse rather than better by, as we've already discussed, taking approaches with the SRA that make them think that, that the firm or the individual are not demonstrating insight and, and they need to do more than they perhaps were initially considering. So everything needs to be quite carefully gauged and therefore you do need expertise and experience to deal with that.
0: Yes and that links to uh, t- Tim's point as well about the risk of the cover-up or the handling being worse than the underlying crime or, or, or breach.
2: Certainly. I think what we're all emphasising here is that this is a process which is necessarily front-loaded in terms of cost because you have to invest the necessary time to establish what the underlying facts are before you decide on strategy. Strategy is built from the bottom up, not from the top down. So, that it means in that respect, it's unlike other kinds of commercial litigation where you might take a flyer on something uh, and try out arguments really before at a pre-action stage you have fully investigated the facts, but then picking up on the points that have been made about the cost of that sort of an approach and the fact that it may not be fully covered by insurance. One of the hybrid approaches I've seen firms employ where they do have to conduct a factual investigation of that kind is to deploy an internal team who weren't previously involved in the underlying subject matter to help with that initial factual investigation, for example, identifying and collating the relevant documents and doing a a preliminary review of those documents to assist the external legal team and reduce the costs that the external legal team are incurring. But one of the things you have to be alive to is that the client firm's own risk management team may themselves be in the frame in terms of the potential SRA allegations at the end of the day. And therefore, you have to structure the team who are the, the internal client instructing external lawyers in a way that ensures you don't encounter problems for that reason down the line.
3: And there's a short point I wanted to add, which is arising out of everything that's being said, which is timing and deadlines. The SRA sets very short deadlines when it first writes to firms to kick off an investigation, but will reasonably extend them. And everything that's being said about getting proper advice, proper preparation, and so on, carries with it the requirement that people seek appropriate extensions of what can sometimes be very short deadlines before responding in substance. And the SRA will usually be reasonable. It's a point that Fergal made, which I'd like to emphasize, because people can get into a mess by simply thinking they've got to respond within 14 days, where something's quite complicated.
0: Yes, it's a good point. Thank you, Tim. Okay, so talk us through it. You've been called in by a firm or individual to assist with an SRA investigation. What are the kinds of issues that fall to be considered by you immediately at the outset?
4: Well, Marianne, I think the first priority will be as basic as uh, establishing who will be your client. Entity-based regulation means that there'll usually be more than one potential target for regulatory action. There'll be the firm itself, plus one or more culpable individuals. Can I act for more than one of them? Can I act for all of them? Is there a conflict or a significant risk of conflict between the potential clients? Should one or more of them be separately advised? These are the sorts of questions which will be passing through one's mind on first being approached. Now, conflict between the interests of the firms and the potentially culpable individuals may may be obvious in a case, say, of dishonesty, or at least where there's some evidence dishonesty, because the solicitor's interest may be to seek to justify the conduct insofar so far as he or she properly can, whereas the firm's interest may be to acknowledge the misconduct, to, to, to distance itself from the solicitor in question, and perhaps even in an appropriate case take disciplinary action at an early stage. So that's a situation where conflict may be fairly clear, but there may be more subtle ways in which there may be a potential conflict. Suppose that the solicitor has an argument that he or she is being let down by the firm's systems and controls. On the other hand, the firm may say that the solicitor is very much to blame. Or you may have a junior solicitor who's entitled to say that the supervising partner ought to carry sole professional responsibility. Now, depending on the facts, it may well be, of course, that at least at the investigation stage, the firm and the individuals wish to present a united front. It may be in their common interests to do so. And it may be that the firm and the advising council take the view that they can act in the best interests of each of them, at least for the for the time being. But it is important, I think, that the risk of conflict be carefully considered at the outset and indeed discussed with the prospective clients before any decision is, is taken to act for more than one of them.
3: I completely agree with that, because the, the question of conflict, if left unaddressed, will potentially lead to possibly all representation having to be changed if a conflict subsequently emerges which can't be managed. And so I completely agree with Richard. It must be addressed, i.e. whether there's a conflict and risk, at very early on, And then kept under review. And it often boils down to a simple question Does the firm support the partner, the associate, in light of the facts that are being revealed by the investigation? If so, a conflict is unlikely to ensue. But if not, then one is likely to ensue. I completely agree with Richard. Addressing this early is really important.
2: Yes. And one of the ways that one can address it is to is to tackle it directly in the retainer, where you see the potential for a future conflict to emerge, but there is no actual conflict. Uh, agreeing upfront and recording in the retainer what's to happen if the worst does happen and a conflict emerges. So the, the firm and the individual or the two individuals in question might agree which of them the external legal advisors are to carry on acting for. They, they might agree specifically that, you know, possession of confidential information is not to be a barred carrying on acting. And if they can agree in all that and they've got clarity about it in the retainer, they may then feel far more comfortable carrying on sharing representation at a stage where undoubtedly it's in their common interest to present a united front because they know that everything has been pre agreed as to what will happen if that ceases to be the case.
5: I agree with that, Patricia. Um, Every case is different. But where we act for more than one individual or uh, an individual in a firm, in a disciplinary case, we always very carefully consider the contractual terms of engagement, discuss them with the clients at the outset and reach agreement. Because the last thing you want when you're about to go into a trial is for a conflict to emerge and for there to be disruption and delay and further cost in ensuring that all parties have necessary representation. There are various strategies you can consider, as you said, to to mitigate that risk. Sometimes it involves agreement about which barrister will act for which party, and most particularly an agreement on the part of all individuals that they won't object if a law firm or a barrister continues to to act for the others. So it's, it's definitely worth giving that very careful thought at the outset.
0: Yes, so, I mean, conceivably, you could have the conflict emerge during the trial, during the actual substantive hearing, if, uh, you know, during cross-examination or, or something like that. And then you need to have your plan in place for what's going to happen at that point.
5: Correct, yes. And, and sometimes you do see it emerging in situations where there's a regulatory settlement in prospect, if, if one individual or a firm wants to do a deal with the SRA and the other doesn't. So there are various permutations.
6: Could I just make a more general point about the approach to defending? I think the style of the defence has to match the the case and the nature of the particular defendant. And what we see is that cases where the reputation of a large firm is on the line tend to be different. The firm under investigation tends to be well-resourced The issues often divide, as we've been discussing, between the actions of one or two individuals on the one hand, and then possibly an allegation of some systemic failure or consequential failings by the firm on the other hand. So there will be cases where the firm may want to distance itself from the implicated individuals, depending on the the nature of the alleged breach by the individual. The financial stakes will often be higher where there's a large firm which will have a national and maybe an international profile to protect and that will dictate the approach taken to the defence. As we've already discussed, the, the firm is also likely to have full-time compliance professionals, so they'll expect a role and and equally they they may be under the spotlight in terms of the actions that the the firm has taken. So we often find that large firms are more comfortable with an approach that's more consistent with the culture of a large commercial dispute. So it tends to be, you know, very hard fought, Uh, albeit, as we've said, disciplinary proceedings can never be treated as commercial litigation because of that public interest element.
0: Thank you, Michael. Now turning to the important topic of privilege, an issue that can often understandably concern law firms and individual solicitors is how they should be protecting their client or perhaps former client's privilege during an SRA investigation. And what, if anything, they should be doing to stop the SRA passing client privileged information back to a complainant. Following the Court of Appeal judgment in the FRC and Sports Direct, do we now have clarity on these issues?
3: Well, it's probably best to start, I think, with the legislation itself and what powers the SRA actually has to get privileged information, and we can perhaps pick things up from there. The SRA has got a wide power. It's entitled to recover client-privileged information under Section 44B of the Solicitors Act, 1974, if and only if it is satisfied It requires such information in order to investigate whether professional misconduct or rule breach have occurred. It's proper for a firm to disclose confidential information required by the SRA pursuant to its duty to cooperate, and it may be justified for a firm to disclose client privilege material as part of the cooperation duty. Although that point has actually yet to be decided by a judgment of the court, and in any event, uh, one can seek consent from a client if doing so would not be disruptive to the SRA's investigation. The SRA is not entitled to the law firm's own privileged information, nor that of any individual within the firm under investigation. And that privilege may extend to advice being given within, for example, the firm itself. For example, if advice is being given by the compliance department to another department of the firm or an individual within it, then that advice may be covered by privilege and it may therefore be the firm's and the individual's privilege to waive. There is, I think, some context We need to give here because, as Patricia said earlier, and indeed Fergal, some of the SRA demands made under Section 44B, which does provide a wide power, as I've said, are very broad. And one needs to remember the phrase only if satisfied, that it's necessary. The, The phrase only if is quite important. The SRA can have material that it needs if it is satisfied that it's necessary to have such material. But that statutory power is not all consuming. It is confined by the language of the legislation. And it's, I think, given the way the SRA is moving with wider and wider demands, pertinent for practitioners to keep the scope of the power. In mind.
4: Yes, can I just pick up on Tim's point about the the legal basis upon which a firm may properly disclose the the client's privilege and confidential information to the SRA? I mean, I certainly agree that the general duty to cooperate may, in principle, provide a sufficient lawful basis. I think in practice, however, it may sometimes be difficult for the solicitor to know the nature and extent of the disclosure obligation in the particular circumstances and whether it in fact requires the disclosure of the client's privileged information and, and, and I think often it, it, a solicitor may find that it's that it's in fact possible to discharge the cooperation duty without enclo- encroaching on the client's privilege by disclosing what's gone wrong in very general terms which don't disclose the identity of the client or the transaction. In question. And I think what one gets from a Section 44b notice is clarity. It gives the firm the best protection against a complaint from the uh, client that the solicitor has, has breached privilege and confidence. I think um, happily in practice, in my experience at least, the SRA usually, often as a matter of course, is prepared to issue a Section 44b notice if it wants to see the privilege Information that the practical problem then arises when that um, request is drafted in terms which are unjustifiably wide, which is often the case as has been mentioned. And just one point on, on that one reads the notice. One can make the mistake sometimes of thinking that a great deal of care has gone into its framing by the regulator, which is not necessarily the case. And, and, and one can sometimes <laughs> successfully pushed back on in relation to a, a widely drawn notice.
2: Yes, certainly. I've I've had that experience that it's actually often a matter of reminding them of what might reasonably be required to investigate the thing they uh, are seeking to investigate and the be careful what you wish for line, that it, do you really want to have 20,000 documents dumped on you, which you are then going to have to review as a regulator with your limited resource. But going back to the question of under what cover do you disgorge client-privileged documents? I think it's very much a matter of evaluating on a case-by-case basis what the risks are. And I think this is, because it is a difficult and delicate judgment, something on which seeking external advice is very often a a wise thing to do. The stakes may be very high for the client, depending on the factual background, in terms of their, their interest in maintaining their privilege, for example, because there is a real risk that that privileged material might come to be used against them, including by third parties, if it leaked into the public domain as a result of the disciplinary process. Now, where that's the case, I would generally advise a firm only to disclose under cover of a Section 44b notice. And as Richard has said, very often the SRA will cooperate in, in issuing a notice and in the framing of that notice. Equally, another scenario that I've known to arise is where there might be scope for debate about whether or not the iniquity principle attaches such that material is in fact not privileged, but that is not a judgment call the firm may want to make for itself in respect of its own former client. And again, engaging with the SRA about the need for a notice is probably the wiser course because it takes the firm out of that debate altogether and avoids that kind of difficult judgment call.
5: And just to pick up on the point that Tim made, the cost of compliance with these notices, we know that electronic disclosure in commercial litigation is an extremely costly process. And it's no different when a firm receives a production notice, because it normally means harvesting material, harvesting data by reference to keywords, custodians, date ranges, and then collating that material and considering whether It's relevant, whether it's responsive to the notice and, and some, in some cases, whether redactions have to be applied and all of that is costly. And if it turns out that the number of responsive documents is in the tens of thousands, for example, that is a a point at which you could consider reaching out to the SRA and saying, look, this is what we've got. Can we agree to filter? The production notice in some way so that it's more manageable.
0: It's a good point, Fergal, and I think as as we see the SRA becoming ever more willing to tackle very big pieces of litigation or transactions, and looking at how they've been handled by large firms, it can often be the case that the concerns that they're articulating involve the trawling over a huge, huge numbers of documents. Um, Perhaps if the underlying matter concerns the conduct of a piece of litigation, you're essentially doing a civil litigation disclosure exercise on another piece of um, litigation. So it does really become a very, very significant exercise. What about the slightly different but connected point? What is the position where a law firm or solicitor under investigation wants to share or feels they need to share the client or former client's privileged documents with their own external legal advisors, i.e. one of you, for the purposes of dealing with the SRA, what's the position there in terms of protecting the client or former client's privilege?
2: Well, I have to say, I think one sees quite a variety of approaches here. What I would advise firms to do, and, and, and some do do, is to ensure that their retainers specify that the client agrees the firm may need to share client privileged material for the purpose of seeking its own external legal advice on a confidential and privileged basis so far as necessary for compliance with its regulatory obligations and if you've put that in the retainer as some firms do then uh, you've directly resolved the problem Other firms have taken the stance of not passing me client privilege material when I'm advising them on a regulatory matter unless and until they have got express client consent for doing so. So that's the very cautious approach. I have to say I would say that there is an argument for saying that because the SRA on its side is entitled to require disclosure of client privileged material for regulatory purposes that necessarily carries with it the implication that firms must in turn be entitled to have their own legal advisers on a confidential and privileged basis see that material when advising the firm on how to discharge its regulatory duties or respond to an SRA investigation because otherwise there's plainly no plainly no. equality of arms. And it seems to me, if the implication works for the SRA, it must work for the defence side of the equation. But that said, that has certainly never been tested or even discussed in the cases. And usually, a more cautious approach, one of the first two approaches I've outlined, is both feasible and preferable. So, that is what I would suggest firms do.
4: Marianne, can I just uh, pick up on on what Patricia's said there? It seems to me as the External solicitor or counsel giving the advice who is about to receive privileged documents. It's important that you understand the basis on which they're being provided to you, and not necessarily assume that um, it, it's appropriate to to do so. I think you need to engage with the question, given the you know, importance, respecting what is a fundamental human right vested in the in the client. And, and the other thing to think about is, I think, is the receiving lawyer is. To what extent is it necessary that you receive all of the privileged information? I mean, is it a case where you need the whole file to be passed over lock, stock and, and barrel? Or would a summary of the key issue be sufficient? Or perhaps something in between? Because if you have to resort to arguing about implied terms or necessity or quality of the arms, that may depend upon whether it was actually necessary that you be provided the information that you you did see.
0: it's It's an interesting point and certainly I'm not aware that it's a point that is often considered and it just seems so natural that one should be able to take advice on a firm or a solicitor's regulatory obligations from an appropriately specialist advisor that query to the extent to which firms and solicitors do even consider this position of whether as a matter of principle they're entitled simply to hand over their client or former client's privileged documents to their own legal advisor for the purposes of getting advice on their own position. Uh, It's an interesting point and it's interesting it's never been tested or to to my knowledge has the SRA ever indicated a view as to how this matter should be handled. So maybe we'll see some clarity on that in the future. It's important of course to to, to recognise what we're talking about here is seeking to protect client and former clients privilege in the context of SRA's investigations and the SRA's statutory override of that privilege. Tim made the point earlier that the privilege of the solicitor and firm under investigation, for example, if the solicitor or firm had taken legal advice as to how to handle a complaint of sexual harassment, is itself inviolable. And the SRA has no entitlement to see legal advice obtained by the solicitor or firm as to their own position.
2: Well, I mean, I have to say that whilst that's certainly the basis on which we all approach matters, and I think the SRA's guidance acknowledges as much, it is quite remarkable that when you look at the cases on the question of the SRA's entitlement to look at privileged material, they don't draw that distinction (laughs) with the clarity you might hope to see. Indeed, there's quite a lot you could say about the lack of clarity in the underlying rationale in the cases for... um, the SRA having entitlement to see privileged material, it would be extremely helpful, I would have thought, if we could have some case law that really drew these boundaries more clearly than is the case at the moment. I have recently encountered a scenario where it does appear that the SRA may perhaps be seeking to challenge that analysis, specifically in respect of advice that a firm took during the course of the conduct that the SRA is now seeking to investigate. So, you can see how that might begin to blur the boundaries from the SRA's perspective when they take the view they can get behind client advice. In this scenario, the client in question is the firm whose conduct is being investigated. Why, they say, shouldn't they be able to see that advice? Well, we'll see how that one plays out, but it is unhelpful, as I say, that the cases have not more clearly articulated the rationale for what the SRA can and can't do, and therefore the boundaries of that.
1: Can I add something in relation to the related issue of anonymisation and indeed redactions, which we've we've already touched upon? In relation to anonymisation, particularly where there are, for example, allegations of sexual misconduct and matters are particularly sensitive in relation to the individuals concerned, certainly an approach I've taken in the past with clients is anonymizing what is sent to the SRA pursuant to a production notice and then providing them with a key. And the advantage of that is, is it obviously minimizes the amount of times those individuals are named, but also I think means the firm can be satisfied it has anonymized appropriately rather than leaving that task to the SRA who are have poor resources in terms of dealing with those sort of things, and 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 therefore gives a bit of confidence. And then redactions more generally. Even though I've certainly seen um, section forty-four B notices that ask for unredacted copies of documents, it seems to me as a matter of logic: is if part of the document is irrelevant and does not answer to the production notice, then it's not caught by the production notice, and therefore redaction is appropriate and quite often on a practical level, redaction can avoid some of the tricky issues that might come up in relation to privilege because simply you don't need to disclose that part of the document and the event. So I think probably from a practical point of view, it may be sensible to start with redactions first and then seeing what's left and then apply the more difficult questions of privilege to what is actually caught by the notice and needs to be disclosed to the SRA other than if it's subject to some form of LPP.
5: Yeah, that, that quite often arises in the context of responding to production notices. There, uh, Obviously, client-privileged information is one thing, but often documents, files contain other sensitive, sometimes personal information, and you need to be alive to your data protection responsibilities. So, you know, documents which contain mobile phone numbers, bank account details, people's signatures, information about medical conditions and the like consideration does have to be given carefully to redacting that sort of material and that's quite often quite a costly part of the process and that's before it goes across to the SRA and if you explain the approach you've taken to the SRA to the discharge of your data responsibilities I've not I've not ever encountered any significant pushback from the SRA on that.
0: It's a good point Fergal and and GDPR and all the complications that go around that we haven't really touched on in these podcasts, but it is, as you say, you know a whole a whole other relevant area that that we all have to be alive to, and the implications of it. Well, sadly that's all we've got time for in this part one of our discussion on defending the most significant STT proceedings of recent years. We will pick up where we left off in part two of our discussion once again, I'm grateful to Tim Dutton, CBE Casey, Patricia Robertson, Casey, and Richard Coleman Casey of Fountain Court, as well as Fergal Cathy of Clyden Co. Michael Stacey of Russ and & Cook and Ian Miller of Kingsley Napoli for their insightful commentary. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this episode as much as we've enjoyed making it. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast.